0: Union casualty of the entire war. You think about that story and you think about this very wise and noble general and yet how he was able to underestimate the ability of a single sharpshooter and it cost him his life. I couldn't help but think about that story and think about what's really going on throughout this story of Judges, and even in our passage today, and how many times we as the people of God, even as Christians, underestimate the war that's going on around us. We underestimate so many things in life. We underestimate the the persistence and the power and the strategy of the enemy on, on that side of things, and then we often underestimate the power and the presence and provision of God, even as Christians. And when we do that, we find ourselves in very vulnerable positions that oftentimes do not end well. So as we walk through this passage today in Judges, and in light of Israel's continued failures, I think that there are five lessons we can take away from their example and from their involvement with the enemy and certainly in their interaction with the Lord concerning underestimating the presence of sin and the power of God. In fact, we're gonna call them five nevers of underestimation. Five things you should never underestimate right here from the text in Judges 10 through 12. So let's walk through these together. The first one we're gonna look at is this. We should never underestimate the impact of idolatry. Never underestimate the impact of idolatry. Let's look together at verses six through 18 of chapter 10. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. The Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that Israel was severely distressed and the people of israel cried out to the lord saying we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our god and have served the Baals." and the lord said to the people of israel did i not save you from the egyptians and from the amorites from the ammonites and from the philistines the sidonians also and the amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and i saved you out of their hand yet you have forsaken me and served other gods therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. The people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. When we consider the plight of the Israelites, here we are again, right? I mean, just like a, like a disc that's on repeat over and over and over again. We see that cycle throughout Judges. We know that they continue to go back into idolatry even after God has delivered them time and time again. And here they are again, back to their evil ways and worshiping other gods. But notice this time, notice the extent of their idolatry. Things, it seems to have progressed. It seems like that every time Israel is delivered out of their bondage of oppression and all the things they cry out to the Lord and God sends a deliverer and then they go back into that again, it seems like when they go back, they go back even deeper and things grow much more complicated for them. But notice the extent of their idolatry. They're worshiping the Baals and the Ashtoreth, we're told there in the text in verse six. These were the gods of the Canaanites, the the land in which Israel was called to possess. The Canaanites, remember that they were called to get out of the land and they never did completely, and so now they're, they're receiving the benefit for that, failure to obey the command of God, and so they're, They're worshiping the gods of the Canaanites, but it also tells us that they worship the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, and the gods of the Philistines. Not only were they worshiping the gods of the Canaanites in the land in which they were to possess, they were also worshiping the gods of the nations around them. And so the extent of their idolatry is now widespread. Not just one god, not just two gods. There are many gods that are now dominating the heart of God's chosen people. One of the realities about Israel's idolatry was that whenever they turned to worship the gods of these other nations, and you see this, whenever they would worship the gods of these other nations, those nations inevitably become Israel's oppressors. You you see that in the text? Every time they go worship the gods of these other nations, that nation or those nations become kind of ruler over Israel. They oppress them and they begin to enslave them, really. You'd think that Israel by now would get that, they would get that memo, they would have somebody in Israel that would have thought through this and thought, okay, every time we do this, things go from bad to worse, but that's not what happens. Here we are again. We're told for 18 years, 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan. Verse nine says, so that Israel was severely distressed. Severely distressed. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller writes, an idolatrous attachment can lead you to break any promise, rationalize any indiscretion, or betray any other allegiances in order to hold on to it. It may drive you to violate all good and proper boundaries. The practice of idolatry is to be a slave. The practice of idolatry is to be a slave. When you give yourself over to an idol, you lose all sense of rational thinking, you lose all sense of of proper boundaries and you pour yourself into this and you become enslaved to it. Certainly Israel demonstrates that fact outwardly as a nation and worshiping other gods. The more they worship the other gods, the more these nations enslave them, the more they become enslaved to these nations. Now, don't, don't disconnect this. Don't, under, don't misunderstand the reality of idolatry because idolatry is not just about worshiping Baal or all of these gods that are hard to pronounce. Idolatry does not strictly mean temple worship. Idolatry is ultimately an issue with your heart's Allegiance. And that could be a false god like Baal. That could be baseball. That could be relationships. That could be your career. And on and on and on and on we could go. Idolatry has everything to do with your heart. And the more your heart craves something, the more you seek satisfaction in something, the more you seek to be identified by something, that is indeed your idol. You become enslaved. And over time, you become so enamored with that idol, you grow enslaved to it no matter how bad it may treat you. You know, our temptation is to look at this passage and just shake our heads and think, these numbskulls, how could they keep going back and back into Not just sin and evil, but idolatry. How can they continue to do this? Well, friend, why do you keep going back to the same idols in your life? Why do you keep finding yourself struggling with the same old sins yet again? Notice God's response to their idolatry this time, especially in verses 10 through 13. He basically says, you wanted these other gods? Don't cry out to me, cry out to them. Let them deliver you. I will save you no more. Basically, the judgment God is giving them here is very similar to what we find in Romans chapter one. If you go to Romans chapter one, we don't have time to unpack that text, but there in Romans chapter one, it talks about how how man is, is, is enslaved to sin and basically, Multiple times it says God gave them over. Basically, a form of judgment is God giving you the very thing you want. I don't think we think about that as, as judgment, do we? We think judgment is like a bad whipping, if not worse. But sometimes God's judgment is to, is, to, is to give you the very thing you want. And that's exactly what he's done here. He's turned them over. He sold them, the text says. There's a transaction that's happening here. He sold them to into the hand of the Philistines, we're told, into the hand of the Ammonites. And their heart's allegiance has got them to where they are and now God's judgment is coming upon them in the form of giving them the very thing that they wanted. Let that, let that be a lesson for us. Let that be a, a strong and sobering uh, means of grace even in our lives that God would help us see that that the thing you continue to give yourself to, the thing you continue to serve, that relationship you continue to idolize, that identity you seek to be defined by, that career you think you can't live without, the more you give yourself to that, and God says, if that's what you want, you can have it. And the sad thing is, is the more you want that, the more you become enslaved to it. Never underestimate Never underestimate the impact of idolatry. We could do a 12-week series on this, but we're going to point to. Never underestimate the impact of idolatry, number two. Never underestimate the work of God. Never underestimate the work of God. This is significant. In verse one of chapter 11, in verses 17 and 18, we see that basically the Ammonites were called to arms and, and now the people of Israel are in a fight against the Ammonites. In chapter 11, we are introduced to this, this guy named Jephthah. I may call him Jep for short. Jephthah is an interesting character. Most scholars don't know what to do with him. I don't either. I mean, you, you read him, you're like, is he good, is he bad? You get to the end, you're like, yeah, I think he's bad. But you just don't know what to do with him because he does a few things that make you, uh, you just don't know what to do with him. And so let's try to do something with him. Let's look at chapter 11, verses one and following. We're talking about not underestimating the power of God. Look at what we see here. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior but was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in, your, in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel and the Ammonites made war, uh, and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead, who do they go to? They went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader, that we may fight with the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why would, why why have you come to me now when you are in distress? I kind of like that, he's like, why are you coming to me? It's your problem, you kicked me out, and now you're coming to me? Verse eight, and the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight with the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight with the Ammonites and the Lord gives, me, gives them over to me, I will be your head. He's like, all right, you wanna make me your leader? Sounds like a deal to me. The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them, and Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Something that we often see in the scriptures, no less true here in Judges, we see it in our own lives, is that when things are at their very worst, God's grace shines the brightest. When things seem to be at their rock bottom, it's when God's grace seems to be the brightest. Verses 15 and 16, see back in uh, chapter 10, Israel seems to to be truly repentant. Seems, time would only tell, but the text says that the Lord became impatient over the misery of Israel. He just said, I'm gonna save you no more, but he's made a promise. Remember the promise he made to Abraham. And part of God's character includes not just justice and judgment, but also grace and mercy and love and compassion. God is a compassionate God, even when his people are the most obstinate. And what you see there in that phrase, became impatient over the misery of Israel, is God's compassion. God's compassion on display. The narrative continues now to chapter 11. We meet this man, Jephthah. He was a son of a prostitute, disowned by his half-brothers, his other brothers, and he goes and lives in the land of Tob where he basically forms a gang and becomes well-known for their fighting. That's what happens. And yet, in his providence, and in his amazing wisdom, God allows the son of a prostitute and gang leader to deliver Israel from their oppressors. Just like God, isn't it? He's an amazing God, he does amazing things. Not only is Israel as a whole at one of their lowest points spiritually, God chooses to allow a notorious man to become their leader and who would lead them from the oppressive Ammonites. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us many things, but one of the things it tells us is that do not buy the lie that circumstances are just too bad and too far gone for God to do something good and glorious. Had you been an Israelite during this day and time, and maybe you were kinda like Noah, kinda the only righteous person around, and you were to kinda survey the scene, my guess is that you would have thought No way we're getting out of this one. This is it. This is our demise. We're done. Things are bad. They are really bad. That's probably what we'd have thought. We'd have thought there's just no hope. But yet, in an amazing testimony of God's grace, he raises this unlikely leader up and uses him to deliver his people from bondage. That's what God does. He does things that... Amaze us, does this, he acts to deliver his wicked people through the hands of this ungodly gang leader. Now, I read one uh, statement by Pastor Mark Dever who, who said this. He said, just because God can use something is never a good argument for it. So keep in mind that just because we're saying that God raises up unlikely and even even. Criminal like people doesn't mean that oh, well we can just do that and God could still use us. It's not, we're not praising Jephthah and certainly as we continue the text, we're not praising his, his um, actions and his behavior, his personal behavior. What we're praising is the faithfulness of God to do what we could never think or do. That's what we're seeing here. No circumstance, no circumstance. Did you hear me? No circumstance is too difficult for God to overcome. None, zero. For some of you, that's the only thing you needed to hear this morning because you think your circumstances are so bad and so corrupt and so far blown that not even God could do something. And friend, that is nothing more than a lie of Satan. Right here is a great example of how God's people at their lowest and in their sin and in their idolatry is delivered by an unlikely, ungodly man who comes and is is used of God. So don't think for a moment that your circumstances are too far gone for God to do something. Never underestimate God. Never underestimate the power and the provision and the presence of God in your life and in the lives of those that you grieve for and you pray for. Number three, never underestimate the presence and the persistence, especially, of the enemy. Never underestimate the persistence of the enemy. When you pick up in verse 12 of chapter 11, we see that Jephthah, let me just read some of this. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, what do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered. So Jephthah is trying to be diplomatic here. He's trying to say, listen, I'm now the leader. What's your hang up with us? Why are you attacking? The king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah because Israel on coming from Egypt, this is like 300 years ago, on Israel coming up from Egypt took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now therefore restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab and the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. They also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed, verse 18, through the wilderness. He's given a historical lesson here. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went through around the land of Edom and land of Moab and arrived at the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the territory of Moab for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel sent the messengers of Sion, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land to our country. Sihan Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory, so he gathered all his people together and camped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. The Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon, Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites, who inhabited that country. And the text continues there through verse 28. So basically what's happening here is that Israel is about to go up against the Ammonites in battle, and the Ammonites, so Jephthah, he's like, listen, let's try to do some diplomacy here, right? Let's try to negotiate. Let's try to walk through this before blood is shed. So, that's exactly what he seeks to do, and the Ammonite king blames Israel for their own plight because some 300 years ago, Israel came through their land and conquered it. That's what the king's saying, he's like, listen, I have a beef with you because 300 years ago, (laughs) your forefathers came through my land and conquered it. Now I want it back. And so Jephthah was like, dude, I think you got some things confused. We just didn't come and conquer your land. We, coming out of Egypt, we tried to go through other lands and they said no, and then we came to your land and asked permission to just pass through. We weren't about fighting, we just wanted to go through your land to go to the promised land. And not only did you say no, or your, your, your people back then, Not only did they say no, they attacked us. What were we supposed to do? Just stand there and look foolish, be attacked and be beaten? No, so we attacked back and we fought and defended ourselves and won. And part of the the benefit of winning, especially in this day and time, you won, you got land. So that's exactly what happened. So let me just set the record straight. You attacked us, we defended yourselves, and you lost. History lesson, that's why history, listen, that's why history is so important. Amen, amen. History is so important, it's, it is. What you see here is he's making an argument from history to set the facts straight, but then he gives a theological argument. Verses 23 and 24, he basically says, this is what historically happened, but here, here's, here's the bottom line, God gave us that land. That's the theological argument, that, that's simplified, right? God gave us the land, you can argue all you want to. Ultimately, it was God's doing that he allowed us to have this land. And then there later on in verses 25 through 28, Jephthah basically says, and why are you bringing this up some 300 years later? I don't get it. And so he, he sets the facts straight historically, theologically, and logically. He does all of his Argumentation and diplomacy and negotiation gives a clear argument as to why this shouldn't be happening and the text says the king of Ammon did not listen to the words of Jephthah. Now, I think this serves as a very important lesson for us. That lesson is this. While the truth must always be honored and defended, it may not always be embraced. While we have a responsibility to always guard, defend, proclaim the truth, to state it, we need to know that it will not always be gladly embraced. We're called to be committed to the truth because of whose it is, not based upon how it's received. There could be much application here. In fact, if you were to turn to 1 Peter, there in the New Testament, 1 Peter, Chapter 3 First Peter chapter 3 verses 21 through 23 This baptism, which corresponds to this, Peter's in the middle of an argument now, saves you not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal for God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Before that, he says, Christ also suffered, back up in verse 18, he also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He he suffered and so Jesus was one of those people that embodied the truth, he proclaimed the truth and yet he suffered for the truth. Says being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit and then we see the rest of that passage and so we need to know that, that it is wise and it is good even to follow in the example of our own savior, it was the way of Christ. He remained steadfastly committed to the truth, even when he was reviled, even when he was ultimately crucified and taken to a cross. Back in Judges chapter 11, Jephthah declares, if you read verse 27, chapter 11, verse 27, after his argument with Ammon, after his attempt to negotiate, he says, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me, no, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. Basically, he said, I've given you the rationale, I've given you the reasons why this shouldn't happen, but listen, it's ultimately in God's hands. May the Lord do what is right. That's one of his better moments, by the way. He proclaims a belief in God's supremacy and he's willing to stake it all on that belief right right at this moment. It's a great reminder, a great picture, a great illustration for us that we have a persistent enemy and no matter how much we strive to defend and uphold the truth, there will be so many that just simply will not buy it. No matter how articulate, how clear, how organized you are in your explanation, there's simply a darkness, there's simply a blindness that exists and people will often not hear you nor will they want to hear you. And friends, you just have to look at what happened in our own nation. It is clear that Christianity is no longer the respected majority. I'm not sure that it ever was. I'm Not sure that we ever could say that we were in a Christian nation, but if you could say that, it's clear that we no longer live in a Christian nation. We are not the majority. There's even a hijack on the word evangelical today. That, that's being misused and misapplied. And so that means a whole lot of different things to people today. Friends, we are not the majority. We are very much a, what some call a prophetic minority. And you need to know that no matter how long and how hard and how accurate you defend and stand for the truth, there are gonna be many, many people that do not want to hear it and do not believe it. But that does not mean that you should no longer proclaim it. It means you stand firm and steadfast. Gospel resistance is not going anywhere anytime soon. And I think it continues to intensify. The Christian voice today is often mocked. When we speak to issues of righteousness, we are mocked, we are are ridiculed. And when you articulate the truth to people, there is often anger. People don't just simply ignore you today. They get mad, they get angry, they get hostile towards you. They they aggressively, they aggressively resist. So what do you do? What do you do when you're at school and you maybe want to speak into a history lesson that's a bit skewed? Or maybe want to speak into the biology lesson that's a bit skewed? What do you do when you're looked at and you're like, listen, we don't have any room for that here? Or you're having conversations with other classmates in the hallway about these things and they just look at you like you're an idiot. What do you do? What do you do when you're at work and you're told to leave your faith at home and you're asked to engage in some kind of immoral activity for the good of the company? Friends, what do you do when your college student comes home questioning everything you've ever taught them? You continue to hold out the truth, trusting firmly in God's supremacy and you continue to stake it all on Him, that's what you do. Never underestimate, never underestimate the persistence of the enemy. The moment you do is the moment you will fall prey right into his hand, fall trap right into his hand. Friend, you stay committed to the truth no matter what it costs you. Number four, never underestimate the influence of culture. It's a lot of passages we're trying to make it through, but friends, verses 29 through 40, It's one of the most disturbing stories in the Bible. So let's read it. Verse 29, and the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Things are good, right? Whenever the Spirit of the Lord is upon somebody, that that tends to be a good thing. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mizpah and Gilead. From Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. Verse 30 is where it turns bad. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, Lord, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them from Aor to the neighborhood of Meneth, 20 cities, as far as Abel, with a great blow, so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. They won, Israel won, they beat the Ammonites. Then, verse 34, Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines, with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, alas, My daughter, you have brought me very low and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth. Sometimes we're just best not opening our mouths. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And At the end of two months she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. Four days in the year. Disturbing, that is a disturbing passage. The Spirit of God comes upon Jephthah to lead him against the Ammonites, and things are going so well, but then he opens his mouth, and he makes this strange vow to the Lord. Lord, you give me victory and when I return home in peace after the victory, the first thing that comes out of my house, I'm going to offer as a sacrifice to you. This is so foreign from anything that we could fathom. So, a couple things to consider quickly. What exactly did he promise and why did he promise it? What did he promise? Now, some have tried to soften the disturbing nature of this passage and say, well, All he was promising was some kind of animal sacrifice. The idea was that if they won and Jephthah returned home, when Fido came running out the door to meet him, Fido would be the sacrifice burned as an offering to the Lord. Now, now some have tried to, to, to say that, but that is likely not the case for many reasons. One, the word whatever in verse 31 can be translated and probably should be translated whoever. Referring to a person, not a thing. Number two, pets, especially indoor pets, were not, not common. I'm not sure when that part of the fall happened later on, but they just weren't common during this day. Plus, had he intended an animal, why do you see him tearing his clothes and grieving over the vow that he made? Had he meant an animal and his daughter would have come out, he would have thought nothing to say, okay, great to see you, honey. Where's the the animal? I wouldn't have thought nothing about that. The reality was is that he did intend a human sacrifice. He just didn't think it would be his own child. Now you're, you're thinking, why did he do that? Why did he make that promise? That's a great question. Not sure that I have the real answer for, but I think what you do see here is the influence of culture upon him. Remember the background. While he does have a, some kind of belief in Yahweh and God, he had long been ingrained in the culture. He was a gang leader. He had long been ingrained in this idolatrous pagan culture. And friends, when you are subdued and under the oppression, not just living in it, and we live in a pagan culture, but we're not under its oppression, so to speak, like this. When you are under oppression in a pagan culture, marked by idolatry for 18 years. You just don't drop that baggage immediately. You don't just shake it and move on. It appears that Jephthah had this, had grown desensitized to the surrounding pagan culture and now was attempting to use pagan practices to worship God. He was trying to mingle the two. He didn't have... And one of the things you could say is he certainly didn't understand God's grace and he was living by some kind of gruesome works righteousness mentality. Friends, we are impacted more by our surrounding culture than we care to admit. This is a living example of that. This story should cause you to pause and ask, Lord, what are the blind spots in my own life? Where has the culture impacted me that I'm just not seeing? In fact, this would be a great question for you to ask a good godly friend in your life. Maybe your spouse, maybe someone that knows you really well. Ask them. Be the one that initiates this conversation. Just pull them aside, maybe today, and ask them, where do you see the culture impacting me more than the gospel? Be a great conversation to have with someone, all of us. If you're a Christian, ask that person, where do you see the culture impacting me more than Christ? I don't want there to be blind spots. I don't want to be, this is kind of an extreme example of that, but, but nonetheless, it's an example. Don't want to be impacted. I don't want to make these crazy vows. I don't want to do these crazy things because culture has more of a grip on me than Christ. Never underestimate the influence of culture. And last, never underestimate the presence of pride. When you read chapter 12, if things aren't bad enough with Jephthah, the leader of Israel, we now come to another conflict, chapter 12. This time, this conflict was not external, was not Israel with some other country, it was internal. It was yet another kind of civil war that was taking place within the tribes of Israel. Ephraim, one of the tribes, continues to have a chip on its shoulder. They always get frustrated when another tribe goes into battle and they don't ask them to kind of lead the way and join so they can get all the glory for it. It's basically what chapter 12 is about. Ephraim, verse one, the men of Ephraim were called to arms and they crossed the Zephon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? The motive behind that was so that we could be honored and credited with victory. So Jephthah, very much like he did with Ammon, seeks to set the record straight. Again, uses some logical argument. Well, the reason we didn't do that was because of what took place. And so Jephthah said, verse two, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. When I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. I asked you and you wouldn't help. So don't, don't bring that up. The only difference here is that after he gives that argument, he immediately attacks Ephraim and kills 42,000 people. That's not just a small endeavor. These are God's people arguing with God's people and God's people killing 42,000 of God's people over pride. Ephraim's pride, wanting glory and honor for themselves. Jephthah's pride, the lack of grace and the pursuit of dominance. Look at this, he treated the people of God far worse than he did Israel's enemies. This it simply reminds us that unity is something we must always seek to pursue, and pride is something that we must constantly subdue. Even when Israel has achieved victory, their pride continued to be a massive problem. It Could be said that one of the church's greatest problems is the church. Lesson learned here. And don't underestimate the presence of pride even within the body of Christ. It has a destroying result. Charles Bridges once said, the spring of humility, the opposite of pride, is true self-knowledge. Whatever may be seen of a man externally to his advantage, let him keep his eye looking within. And the real sight of himself must lay him low. When he compares his secret follies with external decency, what appears to his fellow creatures with what he knows of himself, he cannot but cry out, behold, I am vile, I abhor myself. It is that kind of mentality, a true understanding of yourself, that will get you along quite well within the body of Christ. When we all realize just who we are and how much we need Christ and how much we need the encouragement and help of others, instead of thinking like Ephraim, we need the glory, we need the credit, we need to be honored, we need to be recognized, we need to be leading the way. His pride will destroy. Never underestimate it. friends. there are many things in life we underestimate, we simply ask you, where have you been underestimating the pool of sin in your life? Where do you find yourself struggling? Where do you find yourself defeated? Where do you underestimate the impact of idolatry? Where have you underestimated the power of God in your own life? Where are you underestimating the persistent attacks of the enemy that's led you to retreat? Where are you underestimating the influence of culture that leads you to do foolish things? And friend, are you underestimating the presence of pride in your own life? There are so many things to consider in this passage. Regardless, there is hope for all of us because Christ died for our sins. If you'd simply look to him and find your peace and full pardon, in his finished work, you'll be forgiven, cleansed, and you can continue to walk in faith and obedience. Do not underestimate the reality and presence of sin, but neither underestimate the powerful provision of a great and glorious God. Let's pray. God, you are so good. and We thank you for all that you've given us in Christ. Lord, would you help us to realize the areas in which we are weak and blind and the the things that we underestimate in this this life that you've given us, Lord. God, there's so many many things that we should consider as a result of being confronted with your word this morning. God, would you help us see, would you help us see what we need to in our own lives, in our own hearts, that we may be transformed, that we may be more like Jesus and Father, Lord, if there, if there are some in this room that, that are here today and they're not a Christian, maybe they come, invitation of a friend or family, or maybe they just showed up today, Lord, and they, they hear these things and they hear, yes, I, I can see these things and yet still are wondering where they can find hope. Lord, would you open their eyes and draw them to you, help them to see their only hope is in Christ. Father, we thank you for what you've given us through him. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen.